How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 83. 83. I think I breathed a little during you the a intro. Little. Yeah. You breathed a little. You were so excited to get to episode 83. I am. Uh, I always exacerbated am. energy. I've, always, I've just been looking forward to episode 83. Yeah, 83. Especially. That's the easily the most important episode out of all the episodes that have ever episoded. Wow. That's confident. I like it. Yes. How but are you, Jake? I'm good. This is not me trying to procrastinate because for a fourth consecutive week, I've not <laughs> watched right. anything but the film uh, of the week. <laughs> you, you went for a big breath when you said that. Yeah, I, I, admittedly, I had a little burp, but oh. that's okay. You, you poor devil. How you been, buddy? I've been all right. I've, geez, what have I, you know what people ask me, oh, what did you get up to the weekend? It's like, I don't, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> that's a that's a asking is that because your weekend was so jam-packed full of stuff to do yeah i know you know how many trophies i had to earn on four guys this weekend <laughs> how many messages i had to avoid from leaving the house yeah no, no, that's a, the life of an introvert yeah exactly it's good it's a tough one well no like we it. are here to talk about film above all that's it um jake what have you caught in the last week well before i jump into Ooh, what i've been catching sorry. no you're good we've been talking all about episode 83 but it's time to do our quote. That is true. From a film from 1983. Are you ready, Zeke? You're one for one now. Yes. So, the, so let's hope to go to two to one. The first episode, we got a quote from Tron, which you got correct. No, Blowout. Oh, sorry, Blowout was correct. And then Tron, you missed out on. So, all right, let's see if you can take back your lead, Zeke. Okay. Uh, I actually cut off the end of this quote because this was a really hard film to quote without it being immensely obvious what it was. Okay. Uh, so I had to sort of cherry pick. Uh, and I'm not going to do a voice because the voice will also give it away. So here's the quote from a, f- a 1983 film. <clears throat> Patience, my friend. In time, he will seek you out. And when he does, you must bring him before me. He has grown strong. And together, can we turn him to blank, 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 blank. I believe this might be Empire Strikes Back. Oh, close. Close. What? No, it's not Empire. Is it Return of the Jedi? It's Return of the Jedi. Oh, man. I'll give you that. You're going to give you that? I'll give you that, yeah. Empire was a 1980, and then this one's 1983. Man. I'll give you that. Okay. Two, two for one. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, Thanks. I, I obviously had to cut off Dark Side of the Force at the at the end there. Yeah, I was pretty quick on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, when I was reading, I watched I was those like, movies a lot. So. Yeah, you, you know what you're doing there. Exactly. Well, there well, you go. That's 1983. Speaking of movies we've watched, Jake, what have you watched in the last week? <laughs> Um, I, I sort of had a similar track to last week, so I'll, I'll, again, I'll start with the, the most recent film mm-hmm. uh, that I watched, or the f- the film that came out most recently. So I watched a, ni- a 2019 film called A White White Day, which is still at a Lunar. Okay. I think it's at Palace as well, I'm not sure, but anyway, so this is uh, another foreign film. It's actually an Icelandic film that is screening currently, and I, I'll say this, I liked it more than I liked Deerskin last week. Right. I found them actually quite similar in a way, not just because they're both foreign-spoken sp- language films, uh, and neither the fact that, for some reason, the protagonist in this film also has an obsession, not an obsession, but like has an interest in a silver camcorder. I don't know why that's mm. like a, a common theme lately. Uh, but no, so this film is about this guy whose uh, wife dies in a car crash. He has a strong relationship with his eight, ten-year-old granddaughter, right. uh, which I found akin to Mike uh, Michael, or, yeah, Mike and uh, 
Stacy's relationship in Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, which I thought was quite funny. Okay. Um, but yeah, the film's about that and him sort of coming to terms with the death of his wife. And I was a little confused because the film opens up on this big tracking shot of this car uh, through like this super foggy white sort of empty uh, freeway road. And they end up that the car drives off, and that I thought this was like a uh, in media res scene that was going to happen later in the film, mm-hmm. and it actually was just the beginning of the film, and that was his wife dying in the car crash. I didn't realize that until I read the logline and connected the dots after I saw the film, so that kind of threw me off. Oh, okay. um, but the the thing I really liked about this film that I almost wish it took further is that a lot of it is about uh, this guy. He's building this house, or he's repairing this house that's sort of in the middle of nowhere. And he calls it uh, weatherproof, which I liked. And, and that's actually one of the first things that opens with this film is a collection of shots. You know, this tripod-mounted shot of, of this house sort of surviving all these different conditions of weather, which I thought was yeah. really cool and interesting. Um, and even just the look of this film is amazing because, you know, Icelandic films is another place we see often on screen. Mm-hmm. But uh, just the fogginess of it all, uh, it's really... I, I don't know how to explain it. It's just a literal white fog that covers so much of the image and it just it, it's a very cold looking film I suppose uh, but yeah he's repairing this house and it's sort of you can tell that it's sort of playing a surrogate of him trying to put all of his thoughts into this house and ignoring the emotional turmoil of losing his wife but he, yeah, so yeah. he's simultaneously trying to learn if she was cheating on him and that's sort of some of where the plot goes as well as him trying to figure out that arc uh, and I found it all to be a little messy, like it trying to do all of yeah. these things at once. I think it was still really good. It's definitely worth seeing just for the visuals and some of the stuff it explores. But I, I remember walking out of the film being like, man, that was, it's it's kind of the opposite of, oh, you should go into this film knowing nothing. It's like, I feel like it's the other way around. You should go into this film knowing what it's about mm. because you might be spending too much time trying to catch up and trying to figure out what the film's about, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, a white Sounds white day. Interesting. It's yeah, it's interesting for sure. I think hopefully it comes to the, the video or something soon, and I'd love for you to take a look at it, uh, much like Deer Skin. And yeah. tell me, tell me what you would think. You got some odd ones in there. Yeah, it's getting weird <laughs> as of late. Uh, so two other films that I saw, I went in a bit of a Brian Cranston. Uh, I almost say tear again. I used that word last week. Uh, what a, a, mar- a mini marathon. I watched two Brian Cranston films yesterday. No, oh, okay, like early so, Brian Cranston. Uh, no, so these are post, both post Breaking Bad, uh, post Godzilla as well. Mm. So uh, this is 2016. So he did two films. He did All the Way, which is about uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, sort of the the first term that he serves after JFK mm-hmm. uh, in the White House and sort of the journey that he goes through. And it's based on a play that Brian Cranston did as well, but they just recast him to do this HBO sort of TV film. And I think that's what drags it down is the fact that it's a TV film. It looks very flat in terms of the lighting, and it's you know sixteen by nine, and yeah. it was very by the numbers in that way. And um, I did like his performance; I mm-hmm. thought he was quite good. I thought Anthony Mackie, uh, yeah, Anthony Mackie as Mar- Martha Luther King Jr. was surprisingly really good in that role. Mm. But outside of that, I was like, I didn't really get much out of the film. It's just sort of felt a little too long, too drawn out. Um, didn't have the like- money and. To back it. No, not really. Like you could tell it was a TV film based on a play. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, uh, there's no cinematic flair to any of this. So I, I kind of got dragged down by that. But then the other one I saw, which is a film I've had my eye on for a long time, is called The Infiltrator, or The Infiltrator. 
Okay. That's, that's a pronunciation. This is one that I didn't think was going to be good, and I was actually shocked by how much I liked it. Right. So this one is Brian Cranston as a U.S. customs official in the 80s. He's going undercover uh, through this scandal that's involving mm. Pablo Escobar. And it's a true story, and, and it's sort of this thing that's been told before. But I was shocked at how much I liked the style of it. It's a very dirty, very gritty film. It kind of looks like... It reminded me a bit of Argo, like the the tone of it. Tone of it, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe a little more dirty than Argo, but in terms of the like the lights and and the aesthetic of it, it reminded me of like a, a more subdued Driver as well. Oh, so I kind of meshed those two films together. I was like, this feels like what this is, and I feel like when you watch too many Brian Cranston films, you start to pick up on his. He's a great performer, but you start to pick up on the same idiosyncrasies yeah, the way he the way he laughs or the way he gets angry it's like oh there's Walter White you can kind of see it in there um, he's still great of course but mm-hmm. um, that's something I noticed but I think it actually really worked in this one because even though I don't know he, he was that well cast in this film necessarily just, yeah um, it felt like too on the nose because it's about how deep he gets into this sort of I want to say cartel but like you know he's undercover agent he's got a family that he has to maneuver but he's also getting increasingly more endangered yeah by falling into this life with these criminals feeling a bit on the nose a little bit yeah and it's like i don't even i feel like they're gonna be better casting but just the tone of it so the film was directed by brad Furman, who's done a lot of these kinds of films it looks like i haven't seen any of them uh and it was also shot by joshua rias so i just wanted to give them a shout out because i actually really love the tone and the look of the film oh okay um but yeah uh, selfishly i really wanted to see them go even deeper though like, I want to see him get truly messed up and do all these awful things, because it's based on a true story. And, again, it yeah. reminded me of Argo, because it's a little, like, look how heroic these figures are. Mm. It's a little too safe, in a way. Well, that's two films I had never even heard of before. Right. These have been on my radar for a while, but I just never oh, okay. got around to well, them. Well, for me, I completed uh, my latest run-through of How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Well, how long's the show? Nine seasons. Did you re- did you watch the whole thing in like yeah. two months? Oh, less than two months. Probably oh my, a month. Oh my god. Yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> so I have been watching stuff, just not new films, unfortunately. Um, yeah. and I've gone back to revisit Westworld. Nice. You were telling um, me that because yes. season three, I think, is now wrapped up. So I'm hoping to this run through. Oh, now so you include... haven't seen season three yet? No. Ooh. Yes. There you go. Because I'm looking forward to Aaron Paul being of course, in yeah. season three. So. I'm going through now and doing the first two seasons, and then I'm going to sit down and watch season three. I, I like that plan a lot, actually. Yeah. So hopefully, next couple of weeks, I'll be able to give my sort of load. The, the first season is still one of my favorite seasons of any show I've watched in the last Damn. decade. It's incredible. And yeah, I got to get onto it, eh? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, and the second season's really solid, too. But there's some great performances in there from, like, you know, James Marsden, mm. uh, Rachel Evan Wood. Uh, Ed Harris um, yeah our boy Ed Harris yeah, you can't go wrong with Ed Harris <laughs> um, not yeah. to be confused for Ed Helms <laughs> uh, you know Ed Helms has his moments too uh, I love him in The Office like I'm still watching The mm-hmm. Office game. I, I honestly really like him in that show a lot I think he has his moments Yeah, he's not quite on the same sort of level as like a Jason Bateman or a Jason Sudeikis where I've right. seen the Jasons. <laughs> yeah, well, I've seen film uh, their range. I still haven't yet to see Ed Helms' range outside of comedy. Yeah. Is, has he ever done a non-comedy at all? I'm sure he has, but like we just don't know about yeah. it. Yeah. 
No, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. The Clapper was one that was sort of a little bit more serious, but right. still a little bit too comedic. See, I think of him in Tag. He just looks old. Yeah. He just looks old in Tag. He's not even the funniest part of Tag. No. Jeremy Renner, our boy. Yeah, absolutely. The only good thing about that film. We, we saw that. Was that? Was it just us two who saw yep, that? Yeah. That was our first ever empty cinema, uh, wasn't it? Was that oh, that no, before? you're right, because Green Book was well after that. Yeah. Yeah. The first empty cinema. Damn. There you go. That, bit was, of, that was a bit film. of cinema sideshow history. Trivia. <laughs> um, yeah, all right. Well, have you got That's anything fair. else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, well, I we actually had a really cool announcement this morning, segueing into career updates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Disconnected, which is, of course, the film that I directed and wrote and did all these crazy things. <laughs> Zeke's like, what film is that? <laughs> We've never talked about this <laughs> never film. Never at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so this is the film. If you go back really early in our podcast history, I think it was like the seventh episode where we did the premiere for this film. Wow. So, it, yeah, it kind of aligns really well. The 76 weeks later. That's crazy. Oh, you did that math pretty quick in your head, just saying. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had the DVD release back in August of last year. So now that we're hitting the year anniversary this week, uh, we got some cool, exciting bits of news. So the DVD is officially, as of right now, DVD's half price. So instead of $20, you can get it for $9.99. So I guess it's actually more than half price. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, so that has free shipping anywhere in Australia. If you go on. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. More than half price. More than half price. One cent over. Um, Every percent counts. Exactly. Exactly. What's the actual percentage on that? I don't know. It doesn't it's, do not fi- it's not 51. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, so $9.99, free shipping anywhere in Australia. You can go on uh, clickerproduction.com to buy the DVD. Or if you're not a fan of the physical media, for the first time ever, we're getting a VOD release. So it's actually coming to Vimeo on demand this Thursday. And that is the exact year anniversary of the DVD. Oh, I, w- I wish we had video. Is it, you do way too many reactions that have <laughs> no audio. I do, I do. <laughs> One day maybe we'll get to a video podcast. Well, yeah. <laughs> for the record, it's... 50.05% off. <laughs> <laughs> I should change the Facebook post. 50, what is 50.05%? <laughs> Brilliant marketing Thank strategy. <laughs> the fuck? Oh. So rev on demand. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, uh, Vimeo on demand uh, this Thursday. Mm-hmm. You can rent the film. Uh, I'm specifically talking AUD, although... Uh, theoretically any currency it's actually really cool when you submit a film because it, it asks you like which currency you want to mm-hmm. change for it and the default is usd and then yeah. you, you adjust your usd and it automatically adjusts all of the other currencies but then you can individually change those so technically australians can get the cheapest version of this film because i made i made sure that was how you're a patriot exactly so for 249 you can rent it for 48 hours or you can purchase it for $4.99. You have it permanently on your Vimeo account, I suppose. Uh, I'm still learning all this stuff myself. And uh, if you purchase it, and I think, I guess, renting would count as well, you get the full seven-minute blooper reel that would otherwise only be available on the DVD. So there you go. Pretty cool. How to find your value. Well, uh, it would be interesting to see how that, uh, if you want to go check out Disconnected, you can go check it out at all of those new platforms. There you go. Or one. (laughs) One. <laughs> one new platform. <laughs> no worries. Well, I think it's time for us to move into our film of the week. Ooh. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, we're watching Midnight in Paris. 
I mean, this, this is unbelievable. There's no city like this in the world. You're in love with a fantasy. I'm in love with you. What are you, oh, what are you hey. doing here? Dad's here in business, and we just decided to reload a lot. Oh. That's great. We can spend some time together. Well, I, I think nice. we have a lot of commitments, but I'm sure it's... We'll... What? Bill arrives with his fiance and her family in Paris for a vacation as he tries to finish his debut novel. He's beguiled by the city, which takes him to a time past and away from his fiance. This film was directed by Woody Allen. Who's that guy? He's pretty he's pretty big. He's got quite a few films that uh people like. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so I heard this Lives is in his, New York. This is his forty first film. That's insane. That's a lot of films. 41st film. That's more than we've made. This is an interesting one. <laughs> it is, it is. So this is, you've seen this film mm-hmm. before, so unlike last week with Swapping Roles, I haven't, I've never seen this film. Yeah, we're well, keeping it fresh. Yeah, we got it, man. Well, one of us is going to have something new every week, you know? But, um... That's exactly how that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, see, I agree with you. This is an interesting film. I've heard a lot about it for for several years. We, I think we even watched a scene in one of our classes discussing the coverage of this film. Yeah, so that's sort of all I knew about it. Um, I knew that there was a time travel element because there's like a Graham Norton interview clip of Tom Hiddleston saying that he was explaining how Owen Owen Wilson explained the film to him because there was some confusion on set about Mm -hmm. what was going on, which I thought was quite funny. And he did his Owen Wilson impression of, no, man, I go back in time. He's like explaining it (laughs) to Tom Hiddleston. Um, so that was my knowledge of this film. It is an it but, is yeah. an interesting premise for a film. Um, yes, and sort of an ode to different times gone past in terms of art and uh, sort of visualizations in general. Um, yeah, well, really, like the golden age of, or what is the golden age of, in terms of nostalgia, in terms of the locations of art, and the world, creativity, that, yeah, and, exactly, and visual, yeah. It's um, I've always liked this film. The first time I watched it was only last year, and I really mm. enjoyed it. Um, I'm, I have not seen out of the forty-one films <laughs> from Woody Allen. I well, that was have... that was this is the forty-first itself. So he's probably done like fifty by now. Mm. I would probably say I've only managed to see a handful. Um, right. I like his films. I think they're very uh, dialogue heavy. Mm. Um, but this is definitely the one that I would say I've probably enjoyed the most. Yeah, I think this is definitely, from what I've read, and this is my only Woody Allen film that I've seen, of which he's directed. Mm-hmm. There's a few others on Netflix I want to check out. I've, obviously, we've both seen Ants, yeah. that he's famously the lead character in. Still um, one of the strangest. Well, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm glad because it's like it still really represents his performance style or the way that he sort of vomits out words. I feel yeah. I feel like that is representative of Woody Allen. That's what I always think of mm-hmm. when I think of him. So it was good to have that, at least, yeah, yeah, yeah. when watching this film and understanding, and very much understanding why he cast Owen Wilson in that role, all things considered. he sort of has the same sort of uh, mannerisms. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I even thought going into this... I rewatched um Bottle Rocket not long ago, and I actually... I, we already did a podcast on it mm-hmm. yonkies ago. Episode... That's the one. And I think... I don't recall what I said about Bottle Rocket at the time. I honestly don't remember what my first impressions were. 
but rewatching, I'm like, Owen Wilson's like excellent in this film because he's just there's something about him that's different mm-hmm. compared to every other film he's done. However, he needs to be Owen Wilson in this film because it's Woody Har- Woody. I keep saying Woody Harrelson. <laughs> <laughs> it's Woody Allen's voice coming out of his mouth. Yes. So it needs to be Owen Wilson playing Owen Wilson in a in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, I think so I appreciated that. And I, I maybe I would say Bottle Rocket is probably one of the the best examples of a very similar type of performance. It's very uh and you know, and that was obviously Wes Anderson. Um yep. and Bottle Rocket, although quirky, is not nearly as quirky as Wes Anderson's la- later works. Mm. It's way more uh dialogue heavy, um and it's probably the I mean, arguably the least Wes Anderson Wes Anderson film. Yeah, what's well, his debut, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And there's probably that's probably a, a huge part of it, um, but obviously, yeah. This this film, it's definitely Woody Allen likes being. He's very participatory in terms yep. of his direction. Normally, when he directs, he also acts. Yeah, this film. is one of the rare exceptions where he doesn't. Yeah, act and in, yeah. if anything, he's found a person that maybe if this film was made in the 70s or mm. the 80s he might have played that character right. instead he's found his placeholder in Owen Wilson and I found a quote this is on the Wikipedia page for the film by the way so there's a quote from Woody Allen talking about Owen and it says Owen or quote Owen is a natural actor he doesn't sound like he's acting he sounds like a human being speaking in a situation that's very appealing to me he's got a wonderful funny bone a wonderful comic instinct that's quite unlike my own but wonderful of its kind He's a blonde Texan kind of every man's hero, the kind of hero of the rigament of in the old war pictures with a great flair for being amusing. It's a rare combination. I thought he would be great. So that's him talking about him and casting him in this yeah. film. And I completely agree. I think he translates Woody Allen's voice very well. I think. Mm-hmm. So what's your, ver- I haven't even asked you yet. Right. Your honest verdict of this film. Yes. Yeah, so I really do. I like a lot of what this film does. You mentioned the premise is really neat. I think the premise is fantastic. Yeah. It's a wonderful premise. I think there's a little bit of execution issues that I have. Well, not even issues, just questions I want to pose and we can discuss on this show mm-hmm. um, why some of the decisions were made in regards to the time traveling and the way that's So the portrayed. rules of time travel? Yeah, I think I think this film, we'll get into it. I think this film, it starts off wonderfully in terms of how it explains the time travel in, 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 in the fact that it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it's so simply and wonderfully shot that it sort of it's allowed to ignore it. But then it starts answering too many of those questions, mm-hmm. uh, which, again, we'll get into. I think that sort of starts to seek into some of the questions I have about this film. I Again, I think the premise is wonderful, and I think uh, a lot of what this film does is, is quite nice. Yeah. It's interesting because I was reading, and Letterboxd is so tricky. With The Letterboxd audience has sometimes they have a lot of opinions I can't follow. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the sort of the pop-up reviews that have come up was people being like, oh, I hate the fact that Woody Allen made this film because it's good and and it's like oh is there something about Woody Allen as like a person that I don't know about is he generally oh, yeah. disliked he had, he's had some he's had some weird he had I think he had ended up dating like his stepdaughter or something oh, like okay. that he's he's an odd character right but it comes back to we've talked about this with other actors um on the show uh, separating the art from the artist. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I don't really want to spend too much time in talking about him no, personally. Yeah. Um, let's talk about his direction and we'll talk about the film itself. I think you're pretty bang on about the pros to this film. I think the premise, I think the first 
act and the first time Owen does uh, transition into the, the past yeah. is one of the coolest sort of scenes. It's the intro to Tom Hiddleston's character. Yeah, the Fitzgeralds. Yeah, and <laughs> it's, there's a certain magical awe and uh, you, you fall in love uh, with this sort of golden era time as mm. much as uh, Owen does. And you do really kind of... It's definitely a film that's kind of paraphernalia for Paris, Paris's beauty. And, um, I think not many films showcase that as well as, as this film does. I think Ratatouille is probably the first one that comes to mind. (laughs) I thought about Ratatouille. Yeah. Yeah. What's in this film? Um, (laughs) that's probably the the only other one I can think of off the top of my head. And it's a very, uh, classical, uh, cinema sort of trope to romanticize a place, Mm. particularly a place like Paris. Um, so for a film to come out, this film came out in uh, uh, 2011. 2011. Yep. Um, and to be doing that sort of classic cinema stuff, that that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Often he romanticizes New York. That's where a lot of his films yeah, that are set. Because right. um, it's where he lives. But um, yeah, this one definitely uh, is a bit more outside of mm. his... Uh, well, the romanticism that he has for Paris in this film is it's it's not even so much as just like him being like, "Hey, this is a great location." He he gets a bit of that in the opening scene when it's sort of those establishing shots mm. around Paris. It's like, okay, I see what he's trying to do here. He's establishing this wonderful location, but it's all in service of this theme, the idea of romanticizing the past and romanticizing mm. the thing that was always out of our reach. And and these are themes that I heavily relate to i mean the, the feature that i wrote earlier this year is all about nostalgia yeah so i was absolutely able to tie those themes of oh yeah this is a great commentary and on sort what of the golden like, age is. i mean and the ultimate point of the film is to talk about how to appreciate the moment rather than mm. to uh to focus so f- heavily on the past and s- stop acknowledging that the past is where the best things in life happened and that's yeah. really expressed through, you know, obviously the two central characters in Owen Wilson. And I'm going to get her name wrong. I always get her name wrong. Um, oh, Maron uh, Cotillard. No, I, you know what? I feel like I actually wrote down the pronunciation somewhere. My notes are all over the place today, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize. <laughs> I wrote, the, you know what? I, yeah, I wrote the pronunciation for this wonderful actress, uh, Barion Cotillard. Is that it? I believe so. Or Cotillard. Yeah, she's um. I mean, she was in the Christopher Nolan films as well. In Inception, yeah, she's she's awesome. Yeah, she's fantastic. But you're right. I think her character best demonstrates the the idea of that of fantasizing the past because she's obviously the one that does it with with Owen Wilson's character, which mm-hmm. you probably say is Gil Pender is his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that's where the relationship forms there. But I think they hit it almost too much on the nose by the end because that was stuff that I was picking up before they made it too yeah. obvious. Um, and that happens a few times in this film, I think, where they take a theme and they, they sort of bash it in your head by the end of it. You're like, ah, I got it, I got it, thank you. But <laughs> no, I think that's fair. I think definitely the ending is is a little weak compared okay. to the rest of the, the film. I think you're right. I think it, what was once subtext becomes uh, full-blown text, yes. basically. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, um, but it's it's hard to look past some of the... Real beautiful golden hues, um, mm. and obviously that that's like in that first twenty minutes, especially um, the, the the golden hues that reflect to the golden years. Um, uh-huh. uh, I mean, that's probably exactly what they were Colors. going for. 
And even the yeah. simplicity of letting the camera kind of sit sometimes. Very simply shot. Yeah. Let, let the actors act within the space. Um, it's sort of an ode to a time gone by with more stage plays and such. And mm. I think uh, he's never been too overly ambitious with his cinematography in terms of he doesn't need to do too much with the camera because often the dial- he's very dialogue-focused as a director. Yeah, he uh, definitely seems like a writer than a director in, mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, what else would you like to talk about, buddy? Um, well, that's the thing, because like, we talk a bit about Owen Wilson as a as a performer, I suppose, but we should talk yes. about his character, because so many of the notes I was writing while watching this film were to do with his character and his journey specifically. So mm. we have the present day in 2011, where he's got you know, Rachel McAdams, uh, his girlfriend. Is it Rachel McAdams? That yes. Playing? Yeah. Um, the the notebook girl, the mean girls girl. She's nice. She's, She's great. great. She's like really Rachel great in this film. Um, but yeah, it's sort of the journey as around, he is such a tourist of Paris. He's such a lover of Paris. And you yes. have, you have his, uh, you know, fiance and you have the parents of the fiance mm-hmm. and all of his friends who are very are much. Constantly pushing him to write his book. Well, they're pushing him to write his book. Uh, they're pushing him to to don't think too far beyond. Like, oh, he wants to move to Paris. That's dangerous. We shouldn't let him think he can mm. move to Paris. It's, it's you know, it's too too much of a risk for his career. And I, I, I'm always wary of films that like, oh, let's make our protagonist a, a filmmaker or a writer or something. Like, it always feels a little too, even for me and you, mm-hmm. like as as filmmakers, like sometimes it's like eh, it feels like it's a little too in circle-y. But I think this film, for two reasons, number one, he's trying to get out of that. He's trying to be a novelist. So he's sort of stepping out of his world to do yeah. that. And the other one is because they go back, or he goes back to 1920, there's really not a lot of room for filmmakers to shop. So you can have a lot of authors and painters and other artists show up. Yeah. But other than, there's only one example of a filmmaker that I, we'll talk about in a minute. I wrote it down. I thought it was a funny joke. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like that they were able well, to Well, at that point, it. cinema was predominantly, well, it was all silent. So yeah, well, exactly. There wasn't a lot of, uh, and even film as like a medium is probably wasn't a respected as like a painter or or a, no, a novelist or a writer. Not at even the time. close at that point. Yeah, so I I appreciated that. It's like, oh, let's talk about Hemingway and Fitzgeralds instead of you know like oh look Kubrick's in this film. Yeah, like we didn't have any of that. So that that kind of pushed me off. But then you have his present day and all these characters around him. Where yeah, he, we feel such sympathy for him because he's sort of getting teased and talked down to it was like oh well you know this guy here that there's clearly a thing going on you know he should you should get him to critique your work you know and i think all of it's very simply done i suppose but yeah. I, I it definitely works like you feel sympathy for gil and you feel bad i mean situations I, I, I don't think this film's trying to be more thought-provoking than what it actually is i think mm. it's a very simple narrative and and i think it's more if anything it's just sort of a i mean it's it's probably a more uh, complex adult version of something like Night at the Museum. <laughs> I saw... But, um, I mean... Maybe it wasn't this film I was thinking of. Oh, no, I saw Uncut Gems being con- uh, compared to... Uh, God, what was that cartoon? It's like the... I don't remember. Mm. I'm butchering this whole thing. I mean, am I wrong <laughs> to assume that? I mean, Night at the Museum takes place at night. It's a bunch of artifacts. Oh, that's true. That's true. There's, there's probably some... It's probably not as tell the it's probably it. not as astute as my Peter Pan observation for ET last week, but um, <laughs> I think uh, this this uh, this film is is simple enough for most people to comprehend. It's it's definitely its main text. I mean, the story is about 
Gil trying to escape, trying to branch out creatively, and he's fascinated with uh, the architecture and the history of Paris, and he he further gets you know pushed down that rabbit mm. hole every time he goes back to the past. But then it becomes very like like we were saying, it becomes very obvious towards the end what the whole purpose of this this time travel and yeah. reminiscing is. I when... th- I think you're right because the filmmaking is very much not to say that it's, oh it's for the lowest common denominator, but it it definitely is. It's giving the audience the upper hand in terms of but telling I, where I would things argue are going to go. Most of the Allen films are digestible films. That's yeah, I'm why sure made they are. So f- famous in the first place is. You know, this isn't a this isn't a graduate situation. No. There's not more going on than what needs to be, and the reason this film is is such a delight to watch is not because of the thought provoking messages. It's actually more the experience, the ride we get taken on. You know, yeah, we well, we get in that cab when it first rolls up around the yeah. corner. Well, my my comparison is. I'm watching him react to the the world around him, him yeah. time traveling, as if I'm watching Marty McFly react to the 1950s. And the reason I compare it is because yeah, Back to the or Future. Or Larry Day from the Night of Museum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean that when I think about Back to the Future, and you, you think about the comical reactions of like, oh look, Marty keeps slipping and says this thing from 1985, and um, almost has a bit of that too. It's because we, as the audience, we're well aware of where he is. Mm-hmm. So in terms of plotting, the audience is given a lot more to sort of work with and that way we can enjoy instead of like a Christopher Nolan trying to trick the audience as much as the characters he's letting the audience know what's everything on the table what's going to happen yeah, and, and then we enjoy seeing Owen Wilson and be really, this is probably that. a more classical Hollywood version of the same story as Back to the Future really mm-hmm. I mean in Back to the Future it's it's mostly played up for laughs whereas here it's more like what if you could actually spend time with these classical literature icons yeah what would they be like well even the stakes are more relaxed here because he repeatedly goes back to the present he's not trapped yeah he's he's totally willing to keep going back to the past he's not disappearing exactly i mean i considered it like a drug it was almost like a drug he was getting addicted to to go back and meet these (laughs) idols and and to live in this world where he's actually respected and amongst his peers as opposed to you know the family that he's with yeah that are all talking down to him and it almost got to the point where i was like I didn't know what this film was trying to... Because you understand, yes, it, you're romanticizing the past and the message as well. You're right. You should embrace the today because mm. everyone's always longing for something they can't reach. But most of the film, I'm sitting there thinking, why doesn't he just stay in 1920? His life is pretty miserable, to be to be honest, in in 2011. So and I was kind of spending a lot of time thinking that instead. I, I think that that's sort of the... Um, but he needed that. It's more a release, if anything. I mm. think a drug is probably an apt uh, comparison to the experience he was feeling because he did get to that point of addiction, but at the same time, he does eventually turn the corner because he can see that what he is suffering is some form of addiction. He's addicted to the nostalgia of looking back rather than exactly yeah. moving forward. and. And not carving out his own legacy because that's what it really comes back to is for every time he goes back, he's talking to all these people that have that legacy because when they were in their time, they lived in their time and created their own works of art, yeah. which would outlast and, time. Yeah, and they don't is, know that they're icons. No. They don't. But obviously we know as the audience and obviously Gil mm. does as a character. So 
the reality is that the, the conclusion is that in order for him to achieve that sort of level of legacy in art, someday, hopefully, he needs to move forward and not look backwards because in the past, you know, he's more he's nothing more than an observer. Mm. And I think that's that sort of plays into it. It definitely does. And my... I mean, there's obviously... There's that creative side of him mm-hmm. as a writer and getting the inspiration he needs. Or well, even wanting to branch away from what he was, uh, you know... Because he was, he was a stage writer, right? Oh, he was a script writer. Script writer, yeah. And then he's moving into novels, yeah. yeah. And that's... Some would argue that that's the transition. It, it, if anything, him going to the past is where he finds a bit of self-value, too, in his own works of art. Because... Mm. He's going back to a time where, like you said, script writing wasn't even a, a form of art at that point. And I think that that also comes into his sort of self-realisation, that yeah. his talents would have been null and void in the past, but he's still... That doesn't mean they're not talents nonetheless. And what I love as well is when he does, you know, bump into these sort of very iconic heroes, mm-hmm. because I think because he comes from a script writing background, that he, instead of being like this um, superly... Uh, aware writer I suppose mm. so he, he could like pinpoint like oh Hemingway I know all of like all of this deep psychology that people would have studied for decades about him he's just a fanboy yeah. he's like oh my oh my god I, I love your stuff you know he doesn't really have the analytical response because he's too busy fanboying over mm. meeting these people and I thought that was a nice little touch as well I was yeah. like oh he's kind of new to this in a way exactly so uh, uh, have yeah. you got uh, anything else you'd like to add, Jake? Let's see. I'm, <laughs> I'm going yeah. through my, my dirty, dirty notes. Um, I actually covered a lot of this already. Yeah, because when I was watching this film, just I wasn't taken away too much by it. I I tend to like films more when they, they play with the vast majority of film mm-hmm. techniques. Um, but then when you look at something like this for audio, it's like, okay, well, they play similar music. for them, And it's great music that highlights the beauty of Paris, mm-hmm. but it is quite you know repetitive music. I, I very infamously think Taxi Driver soundtrack is very repetitive. doesn't mean it's bad. It's just, they, just, they just play the track a lot, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, but when you talk about sound in this one, it's like the only thing I can really talk about is like when he stumbles onto the, the street and you hear the clock in the background mm-hmm. indicate midnight. And again, that's one of those things when I first heard it, I was like, that's very clever because we know the title as Midnight in Paris. We yeah. know that that's what that signifies. Uh, and then they do play it again The set when he tries to bring his fiancée into the action, she walks yeah. away and they make it very overtly clear. Like, oh, there's the sound effect. That means we're about to go back into the past. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was just a little subtlety, but again, that's like you, them using the soundscape mm-hmm. in what was initially very clever. I think they were a little too obvious about it after but hey you know that that's their prerogative i suppose um this film was definitely more a <laughs> yeah. uh, a popcorn chill i think this is not such a yeah, you know I in mean, the last couple of weeks we've had you know we had et which was obviously a blockbuster success and then we had quite a few uh you know more thought provoking ones with baby teeth and and there will be blood where it was very portrait much, lady on fire portrait, yeah so we've yeah. had quite a good art house block there um, whereas something like this, I think, is just a very digestible, enjoyable film. Mm. I definitely that is more an experience than a film that you're left chewing and chewing at the bit at the <laughs> end. <laughs> well, look, I think there's definitely enough in here in terms of like signifies. Like I said, it, it the film makes it quite obvious, mm-hmm. so it's very digestible. That's Woody Allen's sort of technique, if you will. Yeah. Uh, well, Am yeah, I? technique. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you're better at the words than me, Zeke. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess I want to talk a bit about 
let's talk about the bit the split because we've already talked about how 2011 is a quite a harsh time for Gil. Like he's not really well respected. Mm-hmm. Um, he does sort of get his comeuppance every now and then on, on Michael Sheen's character. I think it's Michael Sheen who plays sort of the mm. the professor esque guy who's. He's got the ego. He's one that know. He's an expert in every possible subject you can think of. I mean, we both yeah. know people like that. <laughs> That's what we do. Um, so I kind of like that little rivalry there. But what I really wanted to highlight is that I'm glad they didn't use the same cast in t- 2011 as opposed to the 1920s. And that could have been something like Book of the Wizard of Oz, for example. Oh yeah. When when Dorothy travels to another land, it's the same. It's the same people. Yeah. And I'm glad that they didn't do that. They actually had a whole new cast, and it's a great cast. I mean, we it's talked a about huge cast. Yeah, we talked about Tom Hiddleston, but like Alison Pill, I was like, ah, oh, I love Alison Pill. She's great. Um, Adrian Brody's in this film, yeah, very briefly. Actually, a lot of these people are in it very briefly. I actually liked um, Kathy Bates a lot in this film. She was quite. I mean, she's got a small oh, yeah. role as um, sort of the the book reviewer, I suppose is the term. I mean, let me actually get her proper name because, of course, she's based on a, on a figure as well. Uh, Gertrude Stein. Yeah, Steen Stein. It's Stein. Yes. <laughs> it's a Steen Stein. That's it now. <laughs> yeah. um, Real mix of different uh, those those names. Heaps of people. Um, yeah, but like I said, I'm glad that they sort of split the cast. And there was, I mean, that was the whole point: is that there's the modern family that uh, Gil's related to, but then all of these people he meets in the past, they have to be these historical figures they have to represent yeah that so it can't be like oh look his girlfriend is now andrea or whatever mm-hmm. like it, you can't really swap those roles around uh so easily but i like the way they do that i you know what with the ending mm-hmm. let's talk about the ending for a minute because yeah i don't disagree with you that it's kind of underwhelming it reminds me of the ending of her like beat by beat almost yeah in the sense that he sort of ends up with the girl that you sort of expect him to end up with, um, it's the the, the girl who like runs the she's in the the not the shops but you know the street market yes. thing yeah 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 I guess that's the way to put it. Um, you're right. It, it feel, I guess it does feel a little easy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little especially because obviously um, he he sort of leaves both the past and what was going to be his future. Yeah, exactly. Um, ah, oh, look at the big bird on Zeke. <laughs> um, and yeah, ends up with obviously the one that's very kind of heavily foreshadowed. Yeah, it's like as soon as he's introduced, he's like, oh yeah, he should probably end up with her. She's cute. She, she likes the past. Yeah, but not enough, enough to, not enough to be caught up in it. <laughs> look at it. <laughs> we need a video podcast <laughs> so badly. <laughs> um, all right, well, I think now's a good segue into what I was talking about, the rules of time travel that are established. Again, because it's so simply shot, we almost very seamlessly transition into the past. Even like the streets, they still look like modern streets, but then of course the cars come in. Yeah. And you're like, okay, here we go. But that's sort of the the best part about the Paris backdrop is there are so many parts of Paris that were kind of untouched by time. Right. Which is great because it, it motivates, again, the, the seamless transition, mm-hmm. but also Gil's obsession with, oh my God, look at this architecture, look at this. And exactly. The feel of it. Uh, but I love the, the simplicity of that transition, but then it gets a little trickier when now the private investigator that, of course, yeah. um, Enes, is that her name? I-N-E-Z. Rachel McAdams. Rachel yes. McAdams' family, or her dad specifically, hires a private investigator, and he follows Gil into this thing and there's no you know like a vortex there's no delorean exploding in the air like, exactly. you kind of have to figure out like where the transition is is quite 
subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like that they play the joke that he actually just progressively goes deeper into like, like the 16th or the 17th, 16th century. Yeah. It's sort of a little gag they play at the end. But then that's got me questioning, like, oh, well, what are the rules of this? Uh, this First off, it is legitimate it's time pretty, travel. It's pretty uh, not defined. No, sort of just... which would have been f- good at first or fine. Mm-hmm. Because, like, okay, this is the scenario that we p- popped in. Yeah. But now that I feel like because they started to answer these questions, especially when um, Gil, he gets the book and he gets it translated, and he is mentioned in that book. So it's like, okay, the time travel actually works in this way where he's going back and actually creating a somewhat butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. Not like a crazy one, mm-hmm. but like he now exists in the past. Like that's something they established. So Different it's... movie, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Uh, no, but you know what I mean? So yeah. They start establishing the I think it loses its it own rules. Gets confused. Well, they introduce too many of them. Mm. And that kind of... I'm like, well, now I kind of want to know the rules of the time travel here because of that. Yeah, and that might be one of the, the biggest shortcomings of the film. It can get a little mm. convoluted and crazy, but maybe because this film doesn't take... It doesn't put such a focus on the actual time travel like Back to the Future does. It's such yeah. a huge part, that having the DeLorean and having the you know the flux capacitor and how, how the machine runs itself. Yeah. Well, in all three... Ten minutes all three, explaining well, it. I mean, in all three films, they've yeah. all got different... Uh, ways of doing that sort of time travel. You know, mm. one's getting hit by lightning, one's, you know, the steam engine, and one... It's, it's very much a time travel movie that focuses on time travel, whereas this yeah. is a sort of a time travel movie that doesn't really overly focus on the time travel element. The time no. travel is literally just the bridge between the two worlds. Exactly. Well, right. it's it's the, the catalyst that leads us into the, the main story, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, well, enables the main story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Would you like to move into highlight scenes? Um, Do you have anything else you'd like to? Have? You know what? I haven't written down a highlight scene. <laughs> actually, you know what? That's actually a perfect segue. So yes, let's do it. Let's do our highlight scenes, Zig. But you, you go first. That's all right. Mine's definitely going to be the <laughs> first time he transitions. Uh, it, uh, yeah, that's a great scene. Um, and sort of how that whole scene plays out because it's sort of like there's a lot of different faces in there that are quite mm. famous now in hindsight you know i think that was relatively early on in hiddleston's career so oh, it's okay, one of the, one of well his... that would have been the same year that the original four came out in yeah so it's, yeah it's really cool to see him in other works outside of the mcu um and yeah just that first sort of whole experience where he goes into the sort of the the dark the pub area or the bar yeah and, and he slowly realizes the music oh is. the sheet music i recognize the face yeah. of that guy and then that is a great scene i think that scene is actually the one we saw in class yes to discuss coverage and how simple coverage can be uh, between mm-hmm. shot reverse shot of of tom hillson allison pill and then the shot reverse shot yeah. of owen wilson so yeah no that's a great scene and uh funny as well yeah especially the performance i love like the costumes and the tw- i just love the aesthetic of the 20s now I'm falling into this nostalgia. I don't know. I, I just sort of yeah. a part of the appeal, though. Yeah. That's the best part about being in the 2020s. Now we can do roaring 20s parties. Oh, if only. Yes. We're still dressing up as pirates and and fancy spies. <laughs> you know it. What <laughs> well, about you, Jake? Well, my highlight thing. I talked a little early about how I was actually kind of glad that you couldn't really reference too many filmmakers in this film because it's the 1920s. So there's there's so few that would be famous. But uh, the one that does come up here is Mr... Oh, what the heck? Oh, here we go. Uh, Louis Brunel is one of the only examples. 
And I love that we have that little scene of Owen be like, oh, you know, one day you should do a thing where they, they have a dinner party and they can't leave. And he's just a bit confused, like, oh, why? Why can't they leave? And there's that funny little exchange, which, of course, leads into the... Uh, I thought I had a year for this. I think it was, like, 1968. God, I thought I wrote down the year. Now I hate myself. But it's a film called The Exterminating Angel. That is what they're referring to in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's either a 50s or 60s film that, that he went on to direct. There you go. So I thought that was a cute little ode, and that might be my highlight A little wink. A little wink and a nod and a little skip away. <laughs> no worries. Well... Know. Midnight in Paris is currently out in wide release. It's on Netflix right now. It is. That's how I saw it. There you go. Um, Okay, time for us to move into our what is new in streaming platforms and cinemas this week. Jake, take it away. It's an interesting week, Zeke. Let's jump in. Uh, Not a lot coming to Netflix this week, uh, but on Stan, there's a couple of things. In 1957, rom-com, Love in the Afternoon, uh, Birds of Passage, The Expendables Trilogy, so that's all three of them, if you're into that. And here we go. I like this one. Portrait of a Lady on Fire coming to stand this next week. Ooh. So uh, that a little is late to the party there. A little late to the party. I mean, hey, yeah, it's digital. The film was in cinema six months ago, yeah, so I guess fair. yeah, not too bad. I don't think. On Disney Plus, the one and only Ivan, which sees a gorilla named Ivan, played by Sam Rockwell, piece- piecing together his past with the help of an elephant named Stella, played by Angelina Jolie, as they hatch a plan to escape captivity. Also, Brian Cranston plays a human in that film, so not is that... not a dog, a human. Wow! Yeah, so I he doesn't dog. bite. <laughs> he doesn't bite, but he does knock. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh, let's see classics this week. So, if you want to go to Luna next Sunday, you can see North by Northwest, which I might jump on. I still haven't seen North by Northwest. Uh, and then next Monday, so by the time our next podcast comes out, there's a double screening of Donnie Darko alongside Parasite. Ooh. That's an interesting duo right there. I would not have put those two together. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. They usually have reasons for that. Mm. It used to be like Clockwork Orange and Shining. Same director. Uh, Alien and Aliens. No, no Secret, no brainer. Now, yeah, now they're doing these more random huh? Donnie Darko and Parasites. Okay, I've seen both those films. I don't know why. I didn't really need to see both of them either. I've seen them pretty recently too. Yeah, I mean, we well, did well, one of them on on the show. We did Paris. I only saw Donnie Darker like six months ago. So yeah, I'm, I think I'm, I was about just under a year. No, oh, well, there you go. Donnie Darker, so so I'm with you there. At Hoyt's, all of the four original Batman films. So I'm talking about uh, 80s, 90s. That includes Returns, uh, Forever, and Batman and Robin. Of course, you can see those in theaters. Ain't seen any of them? Really? Yeah, I've never seen any wow. of those Batman movies. To be fair, I've only seen Batman '89 and and the uh, Penguin one. I've only seen those two. Okay. Very recently as well, so... Right. Not going to call you out for that one because I, I was there six months ago myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Also at Hoyt's this week, you've got Casino, Inglorious Bastards, Grown Ups, for some reason, uh, and uh, a little old film called Inception. Maybe we could catch that this week. Mm. We'll talk about why in just a moment. Uh, and new in cinemas, you've got Chasing the Present, a documentary that follows a successful young man who embarks on a journey to end his perpetual battle with anxiety. Uh, Low Down, Dirty Criminals is a comedy crime caper that tells the story of two young naive men searching for a better life. And finally, The Shadows a Kabul is a beautifully animated film, and that's my verbiage because I saw a trailer for this, uh, about a young in-love couple who must survive the daily struggle of living in 1998 Taliban-ruled Kabul. So, uh, it looks awesome. It reminded me of Loving Vincent, like the animation style. Oh, wowzers. Um, it looks awesome. 
Interesting. So I've not to got see to see Loving Vincy yet. I've only seen Attitude. Neither, Scare. but yeah, we've seen like trailers and stuff. Yeah. Like. Uh, yeah, I've definitely wanted to give it a watch because I really enjoyed Ad Eternity's yeah. Gate. They both came out in the same oh, year. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Um, both about Vincent van Gogh. And then a, uh, that was uh, William Defoe on the other one, wasn't it? Yeah, Willem Defoe, yeah. Willem yeah. Defoe. Did yeah. I call him William? Yes. I mean, that's his legal name, to be fair. No, he's Willem. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I thought I read somewhere or saw something. You might be right. He Who changed knows? his name. None of those are what we're watching <laughs> next week on the show. But we are watching a brand new film, brand spanking new, brand, just real brand after many months of waiting. <laughs> Jake, oh. what are we watching? Next on the show, guys, it's happening. We're watching Tenet. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Use it carefully. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War Three. I'm not saying I'm again here. No. It's finally happening, everyone. John David Washington plays the operative of an organization simply known as Tenet and is tasked with preventing World War III and Christopher Nolan's latest epic. It's happening, Zeke. It's happening. As I just said off the air, I have not seen a single trailer for this film. You lucky duck. I have avoided it like the plague. And one thing... <laughs> like COVID-19. Well, I mean, I've said this quite a few times, I think, on the show. Um, if I'm going to see the movie, there's no real point in watching the trailer. No, it's exactly and right. Unfortunately, obviously, when you go see movies in the cinema, sometimes you have no choice but to watch a trailer. Mm. But we've gotten lucky. The films that we've seen in the, the cinema, Baby Teeth and Shirley, since coming back to yeah. actual cinema debuts, both didn't have trailers for Tenet. So I still have not oh, seen Oh, that's a, tra- a good point. Yeah. So yeah. I still have not seen a trailer for Tenet. Yeah, because, you know, I, I mean, I've been to the movies way more than you have the last couple of months, and I haven't seen a Tenet trailer either. So, so they must have been playing it close to the chest. Because it, yeah, and I think, I mean, there's there's trailers out there, but I think, yeah, honestly, like you said, you came to you messaged me Friday and said they've finally announced the actual dates, we've got dates session and, and times. session times. Yeah, so we've bought our tickets. We'll be watching it Sunday night. Yes, indeed. Bringing our podcast to you Monday night, so we'll get a whole day to digest it. I think so. When I found out that the, that we were good, because these are technically early screenings, so coming out cinemas next week, you can watch this at, I think, Palace, Hoyts, and Luna, they're all doing early screenings this Saturday, Sunday. So of 20- they they're going to be chockers. They are. They really are. I, I literally bought our tickets like maybe 10 minutes after they went live. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no time for it going live. I was just refreshing Luna's page at like 9 in the morning. So Is it in the main cinema? I, I would imagine I so, imagine, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're not going to play like, oh, let's play Shirley on the... B- yeah, <laughs> Tenet, Tenet in Cinema 7. So, it's going to be a very <laughs> good time. We're very much looking forward to it. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema oh, Sideshow Podcast. Boy. I was Zeke. I'm Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Tenet. Blah.